It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, June 25th, 2023. I'm Ryan Schmelz, college tuition, trade, and China. A number of lawmakers have bills to address the key issues facing the country. Can Congress do anything to bring down the cost of skyrocketing tuition? I'm for that prospective student to make sure that he or she is able to graduate and that college becomes a ladder to success, not a trap door to economic dependency for the rest of their life because of student loan debt. I'm Kevin Cork. A major ruling on immigration, an ethics investigation into one of the justices, and a historic anniversary. DHS under the Biden administration had said, we've got a policy because we can't arrest and deport everybody who's here illegally. So we're going to give these guys who are out there and the men and women who are doing this on the front lines priorities. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Tensions are building outside the Supreme Court as borrowers and budget hawks are biting their nails waiting for a decision on President Biden's student loan forgiveness plan. One major criticism from Republicans is that the plan does not address the root causes of college becoming more and more expensive. Louisiana Republican Senator Bill Cassidy and other lawmakers have several bills they think will address that root cause and allow families to make better decisions that fit their needs. That's not the only place where the pressure is mounting. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Chinese President Xi Jinping this week amid a growing number of concerns to help try and stabilize the relationship. Secretary Blinken and President Xi tackled topics like the spy base in Cuba that China has been operating out of, the spy balloon that sailed into American airspace collecting sensitive information, and China's presence in the South China Sea. Both the United States and China have an obligation to manage this relationship responsibly. Senator Cassidy also has a bipartisan bill dealing with countries like China when it comes to trade. But first, we discuss college tuition. Well, first, we have to acknowledge what Biden is doing with student loan forgiveness does not address the underlying problem. And let me set the record straight. I mean, he's not forgiving loans. He's just merely transferring the responsibility to pay them back away from those who took the loans willingly to those who either never borrowed or already paid back their loans. Now, let's just go to you know the next stage. He's doing nothing for the underlying problem. The Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget says in five years we'll be in the same situation, that there'll be another $1.6 trillion owed in five years by all these student loan borrowers. So how do you fix the underlying problem? We've got several bills, which should all be bipartisan. One, the College Transparency Act. Uh, in this, imagine some kid looks up, he and his family looks in a mirror. What does he look like? White male, black male, females of whatever race. Uh, what's their background? If I enroll at this college in this curriculum, what is my likelihood of graduating in that curriculum at that college? How much am I going to have to borrow? And what am I going to earn? Wait a second. I'm a black male. I have only a 5% graduating in this curriculum at this university. I got to borrow a lot of money. And by the way, 
if I don't graduate, I can't pay it back. But if I do graduate, my earnings only going to be $45,000 a year versus, hey, I'm an Hispanic woman. And if I go to this curriculum at this university, they're really going to look after me. They've got a program if I'm having if I'm struggling to help me. I got an 80% chance of graduating in this curriculum. I'm only going to have to borrow $30,000, but I'll make $80,000 right out the door. Well, what you going to choose? Uh, you're going to choose the one that gives you the best outcome, at least hopefully. At least you're doing it with eyes wide open. So we we feel like this is a way to correct the underlying problem, which is inexperienced borrowers taking on too much debt without a reasonable ability, you know, a reasonable hope to be able to pay it back. That actually addresses the underlying problem. We think it's a better way to go. Now, is the idea to create hesitation or choice and, and allow smarter decisions, how is that going to actually, you know, force the universities to lower the cost of tuition, though? Well, there's a program that um, it's not just lowering the cost of tuition. It's improving their product. I specifically spoke about looking in the mirror, what do you look like, et cetera. African-American males have had the worst disparity with others in terms of graduating. There's universities out there that really do put in these kind of, okay, we're going to see how you're doing. Wait a second, you need 500 bucks to finish out your last semester. Hey, listen, we'll front it to you. And they are eliminating disparity between different demographic groups in terms of graduating. If I'm in one of those groups having a hard time, I should know where I'm going to do well or where I'm not going to do well, number one. So we encourage the universities to put in these kind of programs. Secondly, uh, hey, listen, if all of a sudden people are not enrolling in a curriculum like gender studies because there's no job market for it, but by the way, the tuition is $40,000 a year, you got to go for four years to get it. Uh, and at the end, you owe all this money, but you don't get a job. They're going to lower that tuition. Because otherwise, why would I enroll in it? Maybe I really want to study that. I personally don't, but imagine they do. And you're going to charge just as much as you're charging. The market would say that you're not going to get any takers on that. So we're hoping that that will deflate the tuition by kind of a market-driven process. I am more likely to go into a curriculum that I'm either going to have to pay less to get my degree or I'm going to earn more when I graduate versus... I'm going to continue to go into something unbeknownst to me. The tuition's really high and my job's not worth anything. Uh, so we think there'll be kind of a market force pushing down the tuitions, making it more affordable. By the way, if nothing else, people are going to go to a more affordable university. And have you gotten any critiques on this? Have you reached out to any universities or have you talked to any Democrats in the Senate to see how they feel about this? Some of these bills have Democratic co-sponsors answer that question. Secondly, the, the agricultural mechanical colleges, the AMM, like LSU, Texas A&M, that sort of thing. Uh, in the past, they've been strongly supportive of the bill I described, the College Transparency Act. Uh, they're a pretty good bargain. They're already collecting this data. They're already making it available. So it's kind of playing to their strong suit. Um, they feel as if they are producing kids in curriculums that are going to make a decent amount of money and they have an affordable tuition scale. So uh, we've already heard very positively. Now, some universities are not going to like it. Um, they typically charge high tuitions and and they may be more liberal arts oriented. Uh, okay. The, I, I don't I don't have anything against them. What I am, I, I'm not against anybody. I'm for the kid. 
I'm for that prospective student to make sure that he or she is able to graduate and that college becomes a ladder to success, not a trap door to economic dependency for the rest of their life because of student loan debt. Now, would it be the universities providing the information to the the students and the families, or would there have to be some other you know form of getting this information to them? Well, it depends on our different bills. On the College Transparency Act, that's what, that you know we've been discussing that. That would be the universities putting it up in a way in which uh, a prospective student could look between each universities. But some of the other bills we have would be, um, yes, it's a university, but for example. There would be a standard offer sheet that if somebody is getting financial aid from the universities, there would be a standard form in which the information is presented. Some universities present loans as if it is a discount on tuition that the university is given. No, the university is just saying if you borrow this much money, you apply it to the tuition, your out-of-pocket is reduced. Others will say, Okay, this is our tuition, but you can borrow. They explicitly say you can borrow to offset. So we need to have the same way to compare each university so that the prospective student knows that. And then we have a third bill out there that would say to the lenders, there needs to be an offer sheet, again, standardized, similar to what you get when you get a mortgage. This is how much you're going to borrow. This is how much you're going to pay back. Over the course of time, you'll pay at this interest rate, this much interest over the term of your loan, and you'll pay, obviously, the principal. And it's just going to be a standard sheet, just like there is a standard sheet now for a home mortgage. So that's another piece of legislation we'd have, and obviously that would be upon the lender. Do you think you could get the Biden administration on board with this? And also, do you think you can get enough votes in both the House and the Senate to take action and move it that way? We certainly should be able to. Uh, the Biden administration may see this as a rebuke of their student loan transfer payments. They call it student loan forgiveness, but it's really just, you know, stick it to the taxpayer. So if they see it as a rebuke of their policies, then I think they are going to reflexly oppose. Ideally, they'd want to do something about it because, by the way, did I mention their bill does nothing for the underlying problem that it's predicted we will once more be in this hole within five years? So ideally, they would want to prevent that, but I can't speak for them. All right. So we've got to pivot to China here. You have a bill that's supposed to pretty much eliminate a trade loophole. Can you kind of talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I think um, we got several things. This is de minimis. So right now, if somebody shipping to the United States from, say, China declares the value of the goods to be less than $800, it's not really inspected and it's not subject to the normal import fee that people have to pay. Now, guess what? I think Customs Border Protection calls this the um, the Gift to China Act or something like that. Uh, because guess what? Everything is now is now costing less than eight hundred dollars. Uh, so they are totally escaping these fees. Now they don't give us that credit. What they say is, "Hey, you're shipping to us, and I think the value may be like fifty bucks. Anything valued over fifty dollars, we got to pay a fee on if we're shipping to China." This is a huge, okay, let's just have a one-way shipment pathway between the two countries, and it all comes to us. Uh, what we would say is whatever the other company offers us, we'll give them. So if China is saying, listen, the threshold's 50 bucks, above that you're going to pay an import fee, okay, China, the threshold for you is 50 bucks, and above that you pay an import fee. Now, for India, it'll be set at $200, but it'd be a country-by-country -country threshold 
depending upon that country's willingness to provide access to our goods. Could that be considered a tariff, though? It is already a tariff. I mean, it's a reciprocal tariff. And folks say, oh, my gosh, we can't charge anything on anything coming through our borders. Um, Okay, why don't we just ship all our jobs overseas? If China is not going to pay for pollution control, and so therefore we pay for the pollution that blows over to our country, if they're going to use slave labor, if they are not going to pay any of the fees that, you know, we would have to pay if we ship to them, we're just going to empty out all our jobs. We're going to go over there and we'll end up in dependency. And by the way, the world's environment is going to be dramatically worse as they make more money and increase their military strength. There's a lot of bad things in there. Former President Trump was the first president to really call out China. But I've noticed the Biden administration has continued his policies. And this is some, this is a place where China got it right. They were getting a free ride. Uh, and now we're asking them to pay their 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 uh, share of the freight. And and if they want to go back up to eight hundred dollars, that's great. They can do that. Uh, but they just have to give our products going to their countries same access. If you want that still to be eight hundred bucks or more or less, you don't pay any fee. That's great. Just make it the same for us shipping to you. And that way you make sure that all the jobs don't ship over there, that there continues to be a reason to manufacture in the United States. Now, there are some aspects in here, like requiring more information on every package entering the U.S., use the revenue proceeds to establish a fund for reshoring industry from China. Is there any concern that there could be some, you know, what you might consider regulation in there that could be, you know, maybe burdensome to some companies uh, and kind of create a little bit more bureaucracy when they're trying to trade uh, and import goods from China if they do that? We already have these existing mechanisms. There's like no reason. We already have the existing mechanisms. And all you're doing is moving the threshold from $800 down to whatever the country with whom we are trading has on their side. Uh, So there shouldn't be more bureaucracy. Now, by the way, we've already in various pieces of legislation begun to encourage companies to move back from China to the United States. And that's a good thing. Right now, most of our penicillins and cephalosporin antibiotics You go to the dentist and they give you a shot or they give you a pill and it takes care of your infection in your teeth. Those are made in China. Well, what would happen if we ever had armed conflict with China? Boom. We stopped getting those drugs. Those drugs are essential for modern healthcare, And they're made way, way the majority of them made in China. I certainly hope people agree that we need to bring that back if not to the United States, at least to a country with whom we are an ally. Can you lower the prices while doing that, too? You know, they subsidize their industry. I can't guarantee that because they just have a lot of subsidies that go. But typically, the United States puts penalties upon companies that unfairly that unfairly compete with us by subsidizing industry. But that said, if you bring it back, it could be in Mexico. Labor costs are lower in Mexico, probably a little less, um, you know, probably a little bit easier to comply with environmental regulations. That would be one thing. Or you can make them in the United States and totally eliminate your transportation costs. So I don't know what the final product's going to be, but I know what it's going to be really expensive if we have an armed conflict with China and we stop getting any of the drugs whatsoever and we cannot control these infections. You want to see expense, that's when it gets really expensive. Now, I should probably make it clear to the listeners that this is a bipartisan bill, you and uh, as well as uh, Tammy Baldwin from Wisconsin. Now, if we could pivot real quick to talk about Secretary Blinken's meeting with President Xi this week. What did you think of it? And did you think it was productive at all? 
Well, if it's productive, at least having a conversation, I suppose that's right. If my wife and I are mad at each other, the first thing is to say hello. <laughs> On the other hand, some of it just seemed like happy talk. Uh, China is polluting like crazy. And they are dumping so much pollution into the air that it blows over the Pacific, lands upon us, and we're having to deal with it. They are the number one emitter of air pollution worldwide by far. And the fact that they don't use environmental standards means it's cheaper to produce goods over there. And so, therefore, that's one of the reasons manufacturing is leaving the United States and moving there because they don't enforce environmental regulations. They just just let it blow over upon us. So if Lincoln's saying that we collaborate on environmental issues, that's one of the things he said we could do, and they're doing it like with a realistic viewpoint of Chinese practices, that would be one thing. But if he's saying we're going to say that we're going to environ- we're going to collaborate on environmental stuff, in the meantime, you continue to be the largest emitter in the world. You continue to not enforce environmental regulations, which encourages manufacturing jobs to move to China from the United States. And by the way, we're going to continue to have to deal with the stuff blowing across the Pacific. That's pure happy talk. It misleads the American people. What did you make of President Biden using the word dictator to describe President Xi when his secretary of state was overseas in China? Was that productive or, you know, is he making the right point there? (laughs) You're never quite sure what's going through his mind. But on that one, the neurons uh, fired correctly. Um, You know, Xi is a dictator. He has surrounded himself with a bunch of yes men. And uh, we've seen kind of on video, if you disagree with him, you get escorted out of the room. So on that one, I think uh, Biden got it right. Thank you, Senator Cassidy, so much for joining us. Hey, thank you, Ryan. I enjoyed it. Pull up a chair and join me, Rachel Campos Duffy. And me, former U.S. Congressman Sean Duffy, as we share our perspective on the discussions happening at kitchen tables across America. Download from the kitchen table, the Duffy's at foxnewspodcasts.com or wherever you download podcasts. It's been said that there's never been a sequel that could measure up to the original. But next week's Supreme Court decisions just might well prove to be the exception to the rule. DHS under the Biden administration had said, we've got a policy because we can't arrest and deport everybody who's here illegally. So we're going to give these guys who are out there and the men and women who are doing this on the front lines priorities. Shannon Bream is Fox News' chief legal correspondent and host of Fox News Sunday. So if somebody is connected to terrorism or another dangerous crime or they've more recently arrived here, those are the people we want to target and have them leave. Hmm. Texas and Louisiana had sued saying, no, 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 we want you to arrest more people, which the court sort of like, we've never had a state tell us to have the feds arrest more people. Uh, But what they found is that the states couldn't sue. They didn't have standing, that legal place to actually bring the case. And the language of sort of Justice Kavanaugh wrote for the majority of the court, and he said, this is very narrow. But essentially, the kind of person you'd have to have suing would be somebody who would be subjected to this policy, somebody who would be subjected to one of these arrests or removals. Um, And he found the states, they weren't the right parties to be doing this. That's interesting. It sounds like a a problem out of a civil procedure. You know, you have to have subject matter uh, jurisdiction. Mm -hmm. In this case, this particular jurisdiction didn't hold up. By the way, Sam Alito uh, was the lone dissenter here. Uh, He kind of complained that the court's decision left states already laboring under the effects of massive illegal immigration. 
even more helpless. Tell me about that descent. What do you think of that? Yeah, I think, you know, he's trying to get to the point, because the first question I got when we went on the air with this decision from Bill Hemmer was, well, if these two states don't have standing, because the district court, that lowest yeah. court level had found, this is, these states are bearing some cost from this, from mm. the people who are here and not being deported. Um, who could have standing? Uh, and I think that's kind of the flavor of where Justice Leto's dissent was coming from. Like, listen, these states are, are the parties who are most directly affected, probably, unless you're one of the people that's subject to the arrest and removal. Um, these states have shown real potential cost to them. So if it's not Texas and Louisiana, what, California, Arizona? I mean, I would think they would certainly have standing here. I was surprised, to be honest with yeah, you. Yeah, but... I think that they're saying a state body as a whole yeah. can't do it. It's got to be somebody who would be subjected to one of these arrests and removals that has to raise the objection. It was sort of like this conversation of, of um, the judiciary saying, you're a state asking us, the federal judiciary, to tell the executive branch what to do. Ah. And we don't think that that's the right place for us here. You know, that is one of the major shifts, I think, in the way that the court, the Roberts court, uh, in particular, since it's been impacted by choices made by former President Trump, it's really gotten away from that. And I think it's been really fascinating to to watch. And by the way, speaking of Alito, you know, if you hadn't heard about this, this might surprise you. There's actually uh, been some ethics accusations involving uh, Justice Alito and a billionaire GOP donor. Uh, for the folks listening, can you tell them a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. So ProPublica, which is a group that Listen, its detractors will say it's liberal, it's left-leaning. They've done some really deep dives on Justice Thomas and now this newest piece on Justice Alito saying years ago, um, I believe it was the late 2000s before he hit the, the tens mm -hmm. uh, and the teens, that he went on a fishing trip with Paul Singer, who is a well-known, wealthy, conservative donor. There was another judge who went on this trip, too, and he said he sought ethical guidance about whether or not the trip needed to be reported. And he was told no. And so the thing is, with many of these stories, these justices will say, or judges, I went to get an ethics opinion and was told I don't need to report X, Y, Z. So I didn't. Hmm. Um, that's what Alito says as well. And he also says he had no knowledge that there were any cases before the court involving Paul Singer, that they have a deep dive they do when cases come in. They have checks on the parties and whether there's any connection. Hmm. He said, I never saw that Paul Singer was connected to anything. And we never discussed court business or cases. We had these casual conversations a couple times over the years. Um, but, man, the left has come down hard and said, you shouldn't be hanging out, taking these fancy, expensive trips on private planes and mm -hmm. to these, you know, luxury places. Um, but Alito took the very interesting step of kind of doing a pre-buttle. He knew what was coming from ProPublica. They'd ask questions. And he published an op-ed, essentially, in The Wall Street Journal telling his side of the story unfiltered. And Pretty smart. Yeah, I mean, it's a bold move. I've never seen another justice do that. Yeah, I really thought that was fascinating. By the way, um, I guess Dick Durbin is really uh, mm -hmm. up in arms about this. He's the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he's announcing that the committee may do something about it next week. I'm not sure if they're going to hold a vote. What are you hearing uh, from those uh, folks on the left, in particular the SJC? Uh, this is a weighty committee here. We're not talking mm -hmm. about just some sort of fly-by-night circumstance. Right. And as you know, he's the chairman. Yeah. And so this is a big deal. He says um, they want to force the Supreme Court to write an ethics code and to have some teeth for enforcement. Federal judges do have codes uh, that they have to adhere to, but the Supreme Court is exempted from a lot of this stuff. Mm. They alone can decide if they're going to recuse from a case. There's nobody who can force them to do that. And there have been questionable non-recusals. On all sides of the bench, there have been criticisms about other justices from both sides who did not recuse when somebody from the outside thought they should have. Mm -hmm. So what Senator Durbin wants is to force them to write an, an ethics code that's going to change the rules of the way they report things and the gifts and things that they can accept. 
if I can follow up for just a second, I know that Justice Thomas uh, was also subject to some scrutiny. Even his wife mm-hmm. uh, was subject. Do you think if they were to approach this, and I'm not convinced that if I were justice, I would have any, any inclination to do this, regardless of what Dick Durbin wants to have them do. Was this also part and parcel to this sort of exploration by groups like ProPublica to say, let's find out more about what the justices are doing? Yes, it does seem to me certainly that they're right-leaning justices right now that they're targeting. But I do think it begs the question, is this fair game, do you think? Well, and you mentioned Ginny Thomas, the wife of Justice Thomas. Um, A lot of extensive reporting on her, Mm -hmm. her involvement with very conservative um, causes, what were conversations she was having around the 2020 election, January 6th? She's been called in and testified on a number of these issues. Mm-hmm. But you'll notice there was also a report recently on the wife of Chief Justice John Roberts yeah. about her job and about um, questions about, um, you know, she was essentially a headhunter for very high level law firms and her connections there. So I haven't seen the deep dives on people on the on the other end of the bench. So I think what a lot of folks will say is let's see deep dive um, digging in and reporting on everybody on the bench because there are other people on the bench who've had to amend um, financial disclosure forms that have had other questions about why they didn't recuse, that kind of thing. But remember, um, it was Chairman Durbin that tried to get the Chief Justice to come testify on the Hill, and he got this nice letter that was like, thanks, Thanks, but but no no thanks. thanks. I will not be doing that. (laughs) And the Chief sort of, you know, did this brushback pitch, like, we are a separate branch. I will make sure that everybody is complying. Here are all the ethics codes and disclosures that we have to do. And all nine justices signed it. It was not a partisan thing. So the the justices very much view themselves as a an isolated, distinct entity as the judiciary branch. And they don't feel like on these issues they should come um, to Congress and get beat up over it. I could ask you a million questions because there's so much going through my mind right now. You mentioned Justice Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts. I wondered uh, what your thought was on the the leaker did mm. when that you know do you have any strong thoughts about that i know you've covered the court and i know you have to be careful these mm-hmm. relationships that you build professionally um it surprised me that there wasn't more made of that and I think, if I may be candid, I think it's a reflection of the Roberts Court and maybe not in a great way. Your thoughts? He decided to keep that internal, yeah. that investigation, which he did take a lot of heat from people all over the place who said, why not bring in the DOJ or the FBI? But he said our internal Supreme Court marshal is going to handle this. Um, they did at one point, remember Michael Chertoff, they had him come oh, yeah. as a consultancy and overview what they had done. He signed off. Listen, I think that this was a thorough investigation. Um there are, are justices who have spoken out on this that they know more than we do on this. Um, you've mm-hmm. seen, again, Justice Alito talking to The Wall Street Journal saying, I have my suspicions about who is directly involved. But what they said at the end of the report was, by a preponderance of evidence, we can't point the finger at any one person. And that's not a high standard, as you know. That's basically more likely than not. Correct. But these are all lawyers. And so they're going to be very careful Careful with with pointing the the picture at anybody, (laughs) pointing the finger. So I do believe in my lifetime. I'm getting old. But I do believe in my lifetime we're going to find out who it was because I almost feel like the leaker is going to want to take credit and out themselves at some point. Boy, you nailed it. I couldn't agree more. I think we know. I I have a friend who thinks she knows very well who it may have been, but we'll Mm -hmm. have to find out Mm, at some point. Inquiring minds. Yes, want to know. Uh, Speaking of wanting to know, you know, I really want to know what you think about uh, President Biden signing an executive order. Um, The administration said it was to, quote, expand access to all contraceptives approved by the FDA, including contraceptives that induce abortions. Now, the EO was signed, as you know, a day before the one-year anniversary of the uh, Supreme Court decision Dobbs v. Jackson, 
Two-part question. One, does the EO surprise you, and do you think that will withstand uh, scrutiny, if at all? Because sometimes they're just, hey, it's EO, we can't touch it. But other times, mm -hmm. you have to wonder about that. The second part of the question is, how, if at all, do you think the country has changed in the one year since Dobbs? First of all, the EO, you never know. These things are challenged in court all mm -hmm. the time. They are. And I think it gets to this point that some states have almost universally outlawed abortion. Others... Literally, it is up to the due date. Uh -huh. um, so we've got a big spectrum out there. Yeah. But New York did something interesting. Um, the legislature there is moving forward legislation that would allow doctors in New York to prescribe these abortion pills, because we know that 50% or more of abortions are done through these medicated abortions, uh -huh. um, will allow doctors to send it into states where it might be outlawed, where abortion's been outlawed, without legal liability for these New York doctors. And the idea is, yeah, they could end up being charged in another state, but New York will never extradite them. So it's interesting wow. to figure Bit out- of an end around. Yeah, so that mythoprostone, you know, that's in the middle of this huge legal battle, mm -hmm. um, there's a question about whether that will be able to be sent through the mail to all or some states. That This EO, I think, is probably aimed at that, so mm. it probably will hit a legal challenge. I'll be covering it at the Supreme Court. We'll see. Um, as far as how the country's changed, um, Listen, some states had those trigger laws immediately kicked in. Red mm -hmm. states got redder, blue states got bluer. But what's interesting is there's something for everyone in the numbers. We pulled up our most recent numbers again on Fox News, uh, polling on abortion. So at six weeks, there's not a majority support for you know bans or restrictions on abortion. But when you get to 15 weeks, yeah. the majority of Americans think, okay, that is a place where we need to crack down. Um, that would put us, you know, even that far out puts us in line with some very unpleasant countries that we don't want to be involved in. They're being the same company. Oh, yeah. Some of our abortion policy is so um, is so expansive that it does mirror places like China and North Korea. Um, but it depends on what state you're in, because some states, um, people say there's no way a woman should be responsible for having an abortion or not having an abortion when she doesn't even know she's pregnant yet. Right. So I think that we're just going to keep seeing that play out. But there's there's nuance there. It's not just that America says, yes, abortion legal. We should have never overturned Roe or get rid of all of it. Abortion should always be illegal. There is nuance. And mm. when you ask about timelines, you start to get to more of a feel of where middle America, the most of the country is. And when you mentioned the 15 weeks, you know, when I was in France, I think that's their standard. And so there are some major democracies around the around the globe. Mm -hmm. 15 weeks is pretty reasonable from their perspective. And I think some people thought, well, that would might that might work here domestically. But as you pointed out, Shannon, there's some states where they're like, hey, uh-uh, not at all. And then other states, as you said, right on up to uh, the birth of the, of the uh, child, which is really incredible. Uh, I have always wondered how you, as someone who covers the court, processes so much information so quickly, and you have to turn it around. I've seen you run. I've seen the sneakers. <laughs> uh, now, as an anchor and as a host of Fox News Sunday, uh, they put you in a position where you have to sort of unpack lots of decisions. How has that changed the way that now you have access to SCOTUS blog and mm -hmm. the way that now you have the Internet and everything is on your phone? How has it changed for you covering the court over, say, the last 10 years? Yeah, gosh, I'm getting old because I remember <laughs> when the only way you could get them were those hard copies. And so you would stand there at the door where yeah. they would hand them out. Everybody's jostling and trying to get one. And you're running and reading at the same trying to trying to get to your camera not knock your front teeth out on those marble steps out there <laughs> and digest the whole thing. Now, and during COVID, um, you know, they started remotely so we could listen in to the arguments mm -hmm. and they started releasing the opinions online. So with the click of a button, you can do it. You can do word searches if you're looking for specific things or names. So that is easier in that respect. Um, but I learned some tricks about doing that. And our old buddy and old coworker, Greta Van Susteren, yeah, taught me one of the best ones was turn to the dissent. 
see who wrote the dissent. And that almost always gives you more clues than the majority because you can see who's really ticked off. And it really has helped me to oh. do that. Um, but you do have so many other things at your fingertips now than you did because of technology. Um, you know, what helps me is that I found this week when I was going back over my notes from sitting in the arguments, they're hard to read because, you know, can't take any recording devices in. You can take paper and a pen and that's, that's it. That's it. So I use a lot of my shorthand from law school. You know what that's like. You get your little code. <laughs> for contract. Like, yeah. You get your little pyramid <laughs> yeah. for the pyramid, defense. And, <laughs> um, so you use all those things. Yeah. But in going back through my notes and some things I had really highlighted and start, it reminded me of some nuances to these cases that were waiting on like student loans and higher ed affirmative action. Oh. Um, the web designer out in Colorado, the religious freedom issue that she doesn't want to do web designs for things that she finds offensive to her religious beliefs. So it really helps to go back through those cases while you're waiting for the opinions. And we were waiting for the biggies. Can I touch on that very quickly? Sure. I was telling a, a friend as I was walking in, I said, you know, this week was interesting. Next mm. week's like, get out your popcorn. Uh, it really is. Give me a bit of a preview. Uh, wh- how do you compare this week to next week and tell me what's on the docket? So we've got 10 cases left at SCOTUS, but it's all the ones that I'm like anxiously waiting for. So I do pretty good until about 9.50 because the opinions always come straight up at 10 o'clock. There's anything you could set your watch by in Washington the Supreme Court's the only place. They start those arguments at 10. They give those opinions at 10, like 10 Um, So, yeah, t- about 9.50, I start getting nervous stomach because you don't know what you're going to get and you know how quickly you've got to break it down. So next week will be a little bit of those heart palpitations. We'll get the next round of opinions on Tuesday. But with 10 left, I would guess they're going to add a day or two. Which of the biggies you're looking forward to? I think affirmative action in higher ed is huge because it involves Harvard, a private institution, and UNC, a public institution. Mm. Whether or not you can use race at all in considering to admit someone. Um, And, you know, in that case, you've got Asian American students who say they had nearly perfect test scores, great resumes. They think the use of race has actually worked against them and hurt their admissions abilities. Mm -hmm. I think the student loan debt forgiveness is huge, too. Um, I'm sorry if you're out there with a a student loan. Uh, I know you're probably watching this very closely trying to figure this out. Um, But there is this, you know, the argument against that is that the executive branch can't simply wipe out billions in student loans. But there's a standing issue there, like we talked about in the immigration case. Mm. Are these plaintiffs the right ones? Do the do the justices get to the heart of the case on the merits? I think they will. I don't think they would have held it this long if they were just going to say, I agree. these parties don't get it. Mm. And, and that web designer out of Colorado, it's kind of a second bite at that case. If you remember the guy, Jack Phillips from Colorado, who With was the, the cake. cake maker, yep. um, that case was decided in his favor, but it didn't really get to the guts of the case, the merits of the case. It found that he'd been mistreated by one of the lower commissions deciding mm-hmm. against him. But this one, they took the case for a reason. So I think we're going to get more guidance on how LGBTQ protections work, those anti-discrimination laws, in conjunction with people who have religious beliefs being in the stream of commerce. Maybe we'll finally get some concrete answers there. Popcorn ready. Ready. Shannon Brave, the one and only. Great to see you, my friend. Thank you so much. Kevin. Thank you. That'll do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Be sure to join us all next week as we get new numbers on nationwide home sales, hear from the Fed Chair, Jerome Powell, and get the latest jobs report. In the meantime, we thank you for listening. I'm Kevin Cork from Washington. Stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 
Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts.